Hi folks, a shout out this week to Sharon Pask, who did a review of the Take On Board podcast. Thanks, Sharon. She says, gender pay gap episode, very informative session with Emma Ray. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sharon, for taking the time to do a review. We love to get reviews here. And thanks to Emma for doing that episode. Second announcement for this week. This week we're hearing from Kari Hatch. And listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio on with the show. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast. Being on a board can be an incredibly valuable, interesting and exciting experience. Yet it can also be lonely, challenging and, let's face it, pretty hard. So here at Take On Board, I'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you navigate your way onto a board, onto your next board and to build your governance wisdom. Now, on with the show. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking with Christina Matthews about culture and strategy. Before we start that discussion, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record today. For me, that's the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past and present. I acknowledge their continuing connection to land, waters and culture, and that this land was never ceded. I support the Uluru Statement from the heart and I encourage others in the Take On Board community to do the same. Now, let me introduce Christina. Christina is on the boards of Youth Focus and Leadership WA. She's formerly been on the board of the Bradman Foundation. Christina is the Chief Executive Officer of West Australian Cricket and a former Australian cricketer. She is a well-respected voice within the Australian cricket community and has proven herself to be an effective and courageous leader since taking on the role of CEO at WA Cricket in 2012. And she's redefined the way WA Cricket approaches its business. Christina brings with her 35 years experience in various management, coaching and development roles within sporting organisations, including cricket, hockey and Australian rules football. A significant contributor to the development of cricket, she has spent many years supporting community cricket associations and sits on a number of boards and committees. In 2022, Christina was named WA Sports Administrator of the Year and is one of the 500 most influential people in WA. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Christina. Thank you very much. It is so fabulous to have you here. And I definitely want to talk about culture and strategy. But before we do that, if we could just dig a little bit deeper about you. Can you tell me a story about young Christina that tells us a bit about how you got to where you are today? It's interesting. You look back on your life and you think about moments that you remember. And I remember as a kid, primary school kid, for some reason, I was desperate to have a diary and a briefcase. I thought it was just fantastic if you had to have a diary because you had so many appointments you had to make and briefcase was a symbol of being a a very important person and and someone who was in charge of things. So I didn't have anything that went with it about what I wanted to be. It was just like they were symbols of someone who kind of had success and was important. It's quite funny because I started playing cricket formally when I was 12 in a club And by 14, 
I was on the committee. So from the age of 14 to now, I've always been on committees, councils, boards, so forth, as the language has changed over time, which all have their own set of rules and governing processes. But of course, now, you know, I'm more centred on being on boards. Yeah, interesting. I'm wondering, do you have a briefcase now? No, no, I did. Uh, I did get a briefcase at one stage, but it was a bit daggy. So yeah, I just uh, I go for a standard bag. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm guessing you don't have a diary because everything's online now as well. That is right. It did take me a long time to get rid of my paper diary, just clinging onto it. But uh, I uh, very much am technically focused in regards to my appointments. <laughs> Which also means, of course, that the briefcase doesn't have so much to have in it these days. So maybe no, that's that... wrong. Oh, I love that story. And and it's so interesting to hear that you've been on boards, by whatever name they go, since quite a young age as well. So, so tell me, as a 14-year-old cricketer, I mean, it's all well and good playing cricket, but what then attracted you to being on that, or was it the briefcase? <laughs> what attracted you to being on that side? Yeah, it's, you know, I've often thought about that. And I think it's because I always have wanted to know how things worked and how I could help things to work. Um, I very much all my life have thought I don't have any right to complain about anything if I'm not willing to get involved in making it better. So I think it was probably driven from there and trying to make things better for my own reasons, as a player at a club and a, and a more efficient environment that I was playing in. But I think it's purely about somewhere in me, it, there must be a drive to help the broader communities with which I'm involved. Do you think, you know, often that comes from parents or family influence? Was there something in there that might have impacted that I really need to get in and make things better? I can't remember anything specifically, but I do know my dad, he was president of his soccer club on the committee, fundraising, so forth. And he, um, when I started playing cricket, he immediately went on to the club committee to help out. So I think there is something genetic in that. My brother is the same. He's always been on his cricket club committee. So there's something in that. Is it nature or nurture? But, you know, it's evidence of both. Yeah, fantastic. Okay. Well, then let's turn to our topic today, which is around culture and strategy. You've been on a huge amount of boards and I'm guessing you've seen all sorts of different cultures in the boardroom, some good, some bad, and everything in between would be my guess, and possibly different approaches to strategy as well. So where should we start this conversation? I think you always have to start with culture. People will often say, it takes a long time to turn a culture around from what is perceived as a bad culture to a good culture. I think it's turned around the moment you start modelling the culture you want. It is not something that is done overnight and finished. It is an everyday thing. But the moment you start sending those messages out, the culture begins to change and there's various indications of that depending on where you are. I probably learnt that most of all as a player in a team. Successful teams happen when people all understand where you need to go, what their role in that team is and what sort of behaviours and values you need for that team to be successful. To be honest, all I've done is simply transferred that to a work environment. 
interesting, you're right, you know, having that vision or purpose, you know, being clear on who's doing what and making sure the behaviours back up the values. So is there a story you might like to share with us around a boardroom, maybe where that worked really well or even where it, it turned around, you know, where there was some of that behaviour role modelled to being really aligned to purpose, knowing the roles and behaviours aligning to values? I think probably when I learned the strength of that, when I was still playing cricket, as I said, I was on my own club committee. I then got a position on what at the time was called the Sydney Women's Cricket Association, which was the overarching body for female cricket in in New South Wales, and eventually became chair of that body. Now, obviously, most of the people, as often happens in women's sport, the people who are playing are administrating it as well. So your historic involvement with those people is on the field. And with that, you have your various competitiveness, rivalries, so forth, and then you're around a table with them trying to kind of determine how do we take this competition forward. So releasing the personality I had on the field into the personality that needed to be the collaborator with others to drive an outcome that was good for everybody's team was really where I learned the power of that because in a competitive on-field environment, there are great rivalries and, dare I say, love-hate relationships and, uh, you know, people that you think, oh, I'm never going to sit down for a drink with that person, they're just evil because they have an on-field personality. But when you're trying to grow something and make change, You have to get a bit more depth into the people you're dealing with and you have to let them know that you're an approachable person. Um, So on the field, I was very competitive. I wasn't um, what people might call nowadays a sledger, but I knew what we had to do to win and how to manage that and all the mental parts that go with that. So people who didn't know me had a certain view of me. People who knew me knew I was very lighthearted, easygoing, funny, whatever. So it was important that the people who I'd always competed against understood the other side of me in working with me to drive a change in a different area. Oh, that is so interesting, that on-field personality versus off-field collaborator that is required. So were you involved in or were you chair of the Sydney Women's Cricket Association at the same time as you were playing? Yes. So I'm interested then. I love hearing that, you know, you were like, oh, okay, I need to have a different persona here. You know, what I do out on the field is not going to work in the boardroom and particularly as chair. How did you actually do that? Because if you've you've been a cricketer on the ground and the hard nut, as you say it, and then you're the collaborator, the bringer of people together, how did you actually make that transition? Well, I think the off-field persona is what I really am. And you learn in a competitive environment the facade you have to wear as an athlete. So, you know, you can't be the fun, jokey collaborator with everybody on a field that you're competing against. So you have to develop a persona that keeps you in the right mental space to excel. So it was allowing my authentic self to come through, I think is probably the best way to describe it. And not hold on to things that happen on the field. 
And then I'm interested the other way around then, when people got to see what you were really like, your authentic, genuine self, that collaborative self, that worker with other people, not the hard nut, did that impact on the field as well, where they're like, ah, don't worry, Christina, she's, you know, the bark's worse than the bite almost? Uh, No, it doesn't change the core competitiveness. What it changes is they know that has its place and it's not so off the field, you have a much better relationship. I'm wondering in as much detail as you're able to share, I'm guessing there were some people that didn't get that distinction between on-field type behaviour and culture versus boardroom type behaviour and culture. Yeah, there there would be, but I'm not sure that bothered me Mm. unless it was stopping the off-field stuff evolving. And most people didn't get it. I I wasn't involved with in a, a broader sense and, and it really didn't impact me. I mean, I, I don't spend a lot of time worrying about whether people like me or don't like me. Yes. I spend a lot of time thinking on about the people I need to work together, how do we work together effectively. That's probably how I dealt with it. And whether it's that experience or others, is there a particular experience that you can share from the boardroom that really kind of epitomised that culture? Look, I think in that environment where I had on-field and off-field tension, if you like, because on that committee there was people from all levels of cricket. So people who were playing in at that time we had a fourth grade, third grade, second grade and first grade. So people who played fourth grade were often intimidated by the people who played first grade. I was an Australian player as well. So making those people who played fourth grade feel comfortable in the environment that their contribution to the committee was not equivalent to their ability on the cricket field. It was far more valuable. And to know that people sometimes develop misconceptions or they put people on a pedestal that, you know, they could never be someone I could talk to and whatever. So it's breaking that down and and creating a, you know, we're all equal in this room. The fact that I'm a better cricketer than you by the nature of the grades we play in doesn't matter because you know what works where you play and I know what works where I play and we need to bring them together. That is such a, yeah, lovely, lovely way of bringing it all together and having that true collegiate outcome in what is otherwise a competitive environment. Now keep it also in mind that that doesn't mean that everybody that you sit on a board with or a committee with is someone that buys into that or that is on, you know, accepting the vision that the majority have spoken about. So there's also an issue around how do you deal with that and without belittling that person in the environment or or so forth. At the same time, not allowing them to distract everybody from what the corporate is. I'm wondering whether it's in your position as chair of either that board or other boards, is there a story you can share around that maybe where that boardroom dynamic wasn't overall as collegiate as it could have been and how you might have managed that? I think sometimes there's a process you go through. So, you know, in your early days as chair, you're trying to work out what makes people tick and those people who are less collegiate. You put some time and effort in to get to understand why are they not coming on the journey. Now, you may be able to turn that around. You may not. And it may be that you have to go, okay, I just need to manage this person within the room. Because one of the really damaging things on any board or committee is that one person stops that entity from being productive. 
And that often happens by allowing them to have too much time to talk. You know, one of the tips I got later in life was to, you know, if there is someone who is a negative influence on the group, make sure you don't go to them first so they don't put an influence on the group but go to them last when they've heard other people's opinion and maybe that's diluted what they might have done at the start. So it all depends on the personality you're dealing with. Sometimes I'm really patient with that, sometimes I'm not. What I've tried to do over my time in any environment is to to make sure the governance is well enough understood that randomness can't take hold. Like if you don't have strong frameworks, you know, in boards we're talking about the constitution, the governance charter, the policies and so forth, it allows people to just bring randomness into the discussion. And you need to have those good guidelines, a good understanding of them, so you can explain to the person that's not within our charter, can't do that. If you wish to go down that path, we'll have to re-examine our strategy, so forth and so forth. It's such a good idea to have, you know, those key documents, the, I mean, the constitution or the rules or the charters or whatever they may be, and the strategy. I know when I was chairing one of the previous boards, I would literally carry the constitution with me in my bag a bit nerdy. Not in my briefcase, it must be said, but in my bag regardless. Because just handy every now and again to go, oh, hang on, let's see what the rule book says about this. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I often now in my executive life with our board, our our subcommittees and so forth, I always have the charter within the board papers. And people find that odd. They go, why have we got this here? I said, because if there's a question, it's there to look at. Rather than people speculating on what does our charter say? I love that idea. That's a great tip. So I know one of your tips for people who are looking to be in the boardroom or even building their board portfolio is to be really clear about what they can bring to the boardroom. Tell me more about why that's valuable for people. We get asked or approached to go on a whole lot of different things. Some things where you go, why would they ask me to be on that? And because you tend to go to what the subject matter of the organisation is to be your expertise, whereas I've had the experience now where people have approached me on boards because they've seen me demonstrate either through the media or through activities we do within our business that I have a really strong understanding of governance, culture, strategy, so forth. So I actually spend less time worrying about what the core business is and more time my contribution is around those areas. And it's particularly prevalent in sport and some other not-for-profits that, you know, we've often been environments that have had a lot of volunteers, whereas nowadays we have professional staff. You want to be really clear about staying where the strategy is, not what the day-to-day staff are doing. So... If you're clear on your role in the board is, it stops you getting involved in every discussion on the board and you can then bring some expertise or some suggestions that are more relevant to what your skill set is. Absolutely. Spoken like a a, uh, a person who has governance in their key skill set. Keep that line between governance and operational as separate as you can or, and again, I've been involved in organisations where the board was a bit more hands-on, if that's the case, at least be aware when you're changing hats at the very least. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. And board and the business of boards has changed drastically, but there are still some boards who think that board members need to have portfolios. And that's not as relevant nowadays as it used to be 30 or 40 years ago, where we didn't have the breadth of staff and the size of organisations we do now, particularly in the not-for-profit space. But it's really um, important that the staff don't feel that when a board member talks to them, they have to immediately jump and change whatever their operational plans were because a board member's talking to them and has, you know, their perception is their head of their portfolio's marketing, so therefore I have to do what they're saying. So you're now the CEO of an organisation. You're obviously in the boardroom of others and you're obviously in the boardroom of this one as well, but as the CEO rather than as a board member per se. Can you talk me through, you know, the differences, I guess, that you experience in that way as the CEO at the table rather than as the board member at the table? I think one of the things is being a CEO answerable to a board, it enables you to shape what you would be as a board member and the sort of board director that you feel is helpful to the CEO rather than not. So, you know, it's really good from that perspective. Like anything, being a CEO is understanding the framework you're working in, but it does have its frustrations because theoretically you don't control anything that happens in that boardroom. So you're relying on others to set the framework and bring people on the journey. The CEO has a role in that as well, but, you know, sometimes, and again, particularly in not-for-profits, there's a tendency to get board members who may be are still learning where not-for-profit businesses are now and how things have changed. Yeah. Having a CEO that's been in the boardroom, I think, you know, it's a no-brainer that that helps the person in the CEO role and vice versa. Look, one of the most challenging things, I think, for people coming onto boards, particularly in not-for-profits, and I'm talking that because that's my greater experience, is understanding that when you get on a board or a committee, or a council, you're there to do the best for the whole business, not whatever particular representative group you may have grown up in, been part of, and so forth, or else there'd be mayhem how to contribute to the, the whole picture. Oh, Christina, I knew this would happen. The time goes way too quickly. So what are the key things you would like people to take away from the conversation that we've had today? I think most importantly, it's to understand the governance framework within which this your particular board operates in, how many layers there are. I think it's really important to understand and support the CEO. Equally, be able to see through what the CEO might be presenting. In an ideal world, you've got a good CEO who is not leading the board but taking the board on the journey that they've decided they want to go on and is managing their staff very well. The opposite side to that is, you know, you're often coming into a board meeting once a month, reading some papers and not getting a real feel for what the culture of the organisation is. So how do you get that and how do you kind of keep your ears and your eyes open to look for inconsistencies in the things that are being presented at at, uh, board level? And 
having conversations where you might pick up things that are an indication of why things aren't working. I think most times on a board, you can get a gut feel of, I don't think something's right here. Now, it might not be because the CEO is not doing their job, but you've got to go, well, I need to figure out where that gut feeling's coming from. And is there a resource you would like to share with the Take On Board community? I do always keep across the AICD magazines and stories and governance institutes. So I look for headlines that I think, oh, I need to have a look at that. And I've always been an observer and curious. So I tend to observe and then delve a bit deeper to find out what's going on. It's like anything. You know, people do degrees in different things. They do governance courses and whatever. The certificate doesn't make you an expert. Your experience makes you the expert. So try and have a broad experience and really seek out feedback. The funniest thing about boards, I think, is we talk about board reviews and, and assessment of board members. The reality is if you're on a board for a long time, you become like a friend and it becomes very hard to go, you know what, you're a drain in the boardroom. How do we manage that and how do we keep learning how to manage that and how to review the way your board operates so that people genuinely can grow, not just be assessed as good, bad or indifferent? Oh, fabulous. Thank you, Christina. And, in fact, before we close out, I must also thank Michelle Redfern, who first put us in touch and then we caught up for a virtual cuppa and I knew that there would be an enormous amount that would be valuable for the podcast. So thank you so much for taking the time to share with me and to share with the Take On Board community today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. So that's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. Thank you so much for being here and being part of the Take On Board community. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So I invite you to join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group, an active group that helps, supports and cheer squads each other. Just search Take On Board in Facebook to find us. I'd really love it if you could also do some of the other podcast things. Share with someone you know who might get some value from our discussions. Subscribe if you haven't already. And, well, I also really love it when people rate and review. Thanks again for being part of the Take On Board community. Now go and put these tips, tricks and advice into action so you can be your best in the boardroom.